0: I plan to begin a series today through Paul's letter to the Galatians. But I'd actually ask you to turn, as we start, to Acts chapter 13. That's where we're going to begin. It may seem strange, but it will be clear why we come back here. The New Testament contains 13 letters that Paul wrote. This is the first one, written around 48 the year 48, the letter has been called The Battle for the Gospel. I think it's an appropriate title. So this letter that centers on the gospel was penned less than 20 years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. Wow. Now, for the first 30 or so years of his life, the author of this letter, Paul, had been a Pharisee. That is, he was a well-trained scholar of the Jewish law. He was a legal scholar. For the first 30 years of his life, he had been a strong opponent of anything that smacked of disagreement with the Jewish law. And by the time that Christianity began to spread around 30 AD, spread throughout thousands in Jerusalem and then into the surrounding regions... By that time, Paul was probably in his 30s and he began opposing followers of Jesus and even overseeing the execution of Christians. Then, by the grace of God, Acts 9 records that this violent opponent of Jesus was confronted by Jesus personally. About a year after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, after the church had already become thousands strong in Jerusalem and the surrounding region, Jesus stopped Paul on the road to Damascus and temporarily blinded him. While blinded, Paul was told by another man with whom Jesus had spoken that Paul would proclaim the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and to the people of Israel, but it would take much suffering It's in the middle of Acts 9. Within a few days, Paul regained his sight, and immediately, one of the worst enemies of Christians was baptized as a Christian. That happened almost 15 years before this letter was written, and during those 15 years, Paul matured as a disciple and as a disciple maker until a church that he was a part of sent him out as a church planter. That's why I've asked you to turn to Acts 13. We're going to skim a few portions of these chapters, but we're also going to read a few verses throughout them. Look in verses 1 to 3, Acts 13. We're told there that the Spirit of God led the church of Antioch in Syria to set aside two men, Barnabas and Saul, Saul is his Jewish or Hebrew name. Paul or Pavlos would be his Roman or Greek name. He would use his name Paul most frequently in his travels throughout the Roman Empire. The rest of chapters 13 to 14 record what these two men, Barnabas and Saul or Paul, did on their first church planting trip. Look at verse 14, chapter 13, verse 14. We're told there that Paul arrived in Antioch of Pisidia, another town with the name Antioch, but it's in a different region. And interestingly, from that point on and throughout most of the chapter, Luke gives one of the lengthiest excerpts or summaries of Paul's preaching in the synagogue there in Antioch of Pisidia. Look at verse 48, chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, referring to the message about Jesus as the offspring of David who would save all those who repent, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. What region is that? Galatia. But persecution, we're told, forced Barnabas and Paul to leave. Look at chapter 14 verse 1. Because of the persecution in Antioch of Pisidia, the church planning team, chapter 14, verse 1, went to Iconium, where there was a great number of both Jews and Greeks who believed. But as soon as that happened in the nearby town of Iconium, the unbelieving Jews began opposing. And that opposition, we're told in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, Paul and Barnabas endured for a little while in Iconium. They actually considered it an open door. Once they heard about a plan to execute them, however, verse 6 says, Barnabas and Saul fled to Lystra and to Derbe. Verse 19 records, in Lystra, chapter 14, verse 19, in Lystra, the unbelieving Jews stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Yet Paul, though beaten, Continued on to Derby, from Lystra to Derby, where verse 21 records they preached the gospel and made many disciples. And then shockingly, they returned to all the cities where they had faced persecution. Look at verse 22. What did they do in those cities of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia? They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Wow. The history in chapter 14 ends with Paul and Barnabas returning to their home church, Antioch of Syria, around A.D. 47, maybe very beginning of A.D. 48, and reporting what God had done in the nearly two years since they had been away. Chapter 15 picks up about a year later, probably toward the end of A.D. 48, when the early church has to resolve a controversy. We're actually told what the controversial debate was in Acts 15.1. Look at Acts 15.1. Some men from Judea, we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, implied by Jesus. Unless you add Moses to Jesus, you can't be saved. One pastor says, they did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but they stress that you must be circumcised and you must keep the Jewish law as well. You must let Moses finish what Christ has begun. Or rather, you yourself must finish by your own obedience to the law what Christ has begun. You have to add your works to the work of Christ. You have to finish Christ's unfinished work. This is doctrinal heresy. It is a false gospel. Now, why? have I started a series on Galatians in Acts 13, 14, and into the beginning of 15. It's because they provide the backdrop to the letter to the Galatians. Simply put, Acts 13 and 14 record the church planting of the Galatian churches. Specifically, Starting in Acts 13, 13 and going through the middle of chapter 14, you have churches planted in Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. There are the cities circled in yellow on the southern side of the Galatian region. Today, that's central Turkey. In these cities, Paul and Barnabas experienced much suffering, but they experienced the power of God over these two years. Remarkable. Acts 13 and 14 also record the constant outside opposition that the young Galatian churches faced. And this was especially opposition by unbelieving Jews, but there was also opposition from city officials. They were slandered, persecuted, expelled. There were murderous plots and at least one stoning. This was not easy work. Acts 15, then, records the immediate doctrinal threat faced by the early churches, including those churches in Galatia. And that doctrinal threat was addressed at the council that met in Jerusalem, the history of which is recorded in Acts 15. So, if you want to make a note about the letter to the churches in Galatia, I would encourage you, if you want, between the space that you have in Acts 14 and Acts 15, there's a little space usually between chapters and Bibles. Between Acts 14 and 15, I might recommend that you say something like, it's here that Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, A.D. 48. You might even list the cities in Galatia are Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, something like that. Just to make a note that you realize that it's right between these two chapters that Paul writes this letter to the churches that he has risked his life to plant. Now with that understanding of the context of this first letter that Paul ever wrote, the letter to the Galatians, I want to read the first 10 verses of Galatians. So flip over now to the letter of Paul to the Galatians and we're going to read the first 10 verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. Again, you might put in there Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me stop there and just make two very, very brief comments. Sometimes we read introductions to letters and we think, that's a formal introduction, or that's a very traditional or routine introduction. Author, recipients, greeting. If you understand the background to the letter, you understand that what he's done in the first few verses is thrown down the gauntlet. In verse 1, he says, I'm an apostle. And I'm not representing some church or some group of churches. I am representing God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus. I'm an official representative of Jesus. Let me mention, Paul was the last of the apostles in the technical sense. There are people who today do everything I would call it, apostle-like work. That is, they lay the foundation of a church in an unreached people group. That's like the work that the apostles did. But there are no apostles today. Paul was the last of them. And if you follow someone, maybe online, or maybe occasionally you go to a church where the individual who's leading calls themselves an apostle, you need to stop, repent. There aren't apostles since Paul. There are pastors and teachers, there are church planters and evangelists, there are not apostles. Tri-County does not need an apostle to lead us. We need to follow the gospel that was once for all delivered to us by the apostles. That's our authority, is the apostolic gospel. He also lays down the gauntlet, for example, in verse 3. When he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, he doesn't say that there's grace coming to you from Moses and the Old Testament law. Now truly, there was grace and a message of grace throughout the Old Testament. But grace... Since the coming of Jesus is clearly in what Moses was pointing toward. The law of Moses was pointing toward the sacrifice for sins that the once for all Lamb of God would offer. Grace and peace come to you not from Moses. Come to you from God who authored the gospel. And Jesus who accomplished the work of the gospel. So that we can preach a message of grace. Spurgeon, I love it. He famously said, you've got to get grace and peace in that order. Spurgeon actually said, grace rightly comes first, and peace afterward. Peace before grace would be perilous. Amen. In other words, those who've experienced God's saving grace in the Lord Jesus have relational harmony now and forever with God. You have peace on the basis of grace. And if you think you have peace without ever coming to Jesus, then you have no peace at all. It is a false peace. It is a peace only in your own mind. You can see that in these first few verses, you don't merely have a routine, formal, traditional introduction. You have Paul, like I said, throwing down the gauntlet. Now, back to our reading. Verse 6. Paul says to these churches that he had risked his life to plant, that he had prayed and fasted over after establishing leaders in them. He says, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you And want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. As we have said before so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received. Let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of the Messiah. Hmm. Paul's main point in these first ten verses, I would summarize in this way. The church must never abandon the gospel of God's grace for a different distorted message. The church must never abandon abandon the gospel of God's grace for a different distorted message. I want to explain the three movements of verses 6 through 10 as we approach the Lord's table today. The church must never abandon the gospel of God's grace for a different distorted message. According to verses 6 and 7, there is one And only one gospel message by which God graciously saves sinners. Verses 6 and 7 there is one and only one gospel message by which God graciously saves sinners. To these churches that Paul had risked his life to plant, he had spent nearly two years among them. Paul writes in verse 6 I'm shocked. I'm amazed, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you into the grace of Christ. These churches had begun to be attracted to a message that blended the gospel with Jewish law. And Paul is shocked that they're deserting God. That's huge. If you begin to accept, to personally embrace A different message. You will desert God. And that's because the message of the gospel is the only message that can bring you near God. And it's because God Himself is the author of that message. And you're distorting His gospel. To embrace a different, a a mixed gospel. Will distance you from God. Paul writes at the end of verse 6 and into verse 7 a different gospel is no gospel at all because there's not another gospel. There's one gospel, there's only one gospel. It's critical that we get that one gospel right. Now, what is the gospel? I do not want to assume that all of us know that. Well, we could summarize the gospel, God's gospel. We could summarize it from hundreds of different passages, large and small. We could go to Isaiah's prophecies regarding the suffering servant and summarize the gospel. We could go to Matthew's account of the gospel. We could go to John 3.16. Or we could go to one of the most succinct summaries of the gospel in the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. Paul says, this is the gospel. We could do it from all those places. I just want to confine myself to the first ten verses that we've read. The Gospel first is Jesus is God the Son become human. He's Lord. He's Messiah. You can get that from verses 1 and 3. Jesus, the human, Jesus of Nazareth, is uniquely related to God the Father. Grace and peace come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Jesus. He's uniquely related to God the Father as God the Son. And he is Lord and he is Messiah. That is, he is God's chosen king to rule forever on earth. And according to verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ willingly sacrificed himself for our sins. He gave himself as the offering for all of our disobedience. The next facet of the gospel is that God the Father, according to verse 1, raised Jesus the Messiah from the dead. After he had been crucified, God the Father raised him from the dead. And in doing so, in raising Jesus from the dead, God demonstrated that Jesus had paid the punishment for our disobedience in full. There was nothing left to be paid. And the gospel needs to be received. According to verses 8 and 9, this is a gospel that must be preached. You'll see that in verse 8. And it must be received in verse 9. To experience the grace of Christ, you must personally receive the gospel. Zero in on that word in verse 9. It's the gospel that these believers in Galatia who formed the first churches there in Galatia, it's the gospel that they had received. Received. You cannot do anything to work for or earn grace. If you work for it, Paul says in another place, then it's not grace, because grace is an undeserved gift. If you work for it, the only way it could come to you is in payment. You earned it, it comes to you as your paycheck. That's not grace. Instead, this is a gift. And when a gift is offered to you, you can really only do one of two things with it. You can reject the gift, or you can receive the gift. Receiving a gift is not a work. The other person paid for it. The other person thought up the gift. The other person bought it and may have wrapped it. What you can do with a gift is receive it. You can receive it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that communicates the grace and peace of God the Father and of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to anyone who receives it. So I ask, have you personally received it? Have you heard this message and said, God... You have designed a way for me to be saved. Jesus, God the Son, You died for me and rose again so that if I would accept You as my Savior and Lord, You would save me. Have You received it and called on God saying, thank You for giving it. I accept it. Jesus, thank You. I receive personally what You've done for me. If you have not, I urge you to call on Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today. There is only one gospel. There is only one gospel message by which God graciously saves sinners. Secondly, those who distort the one gospel that was preached by Jesus' apostles will face God's judgment. Serious words of verses 8 and 9 those who distort this one and only one gospel that was preached by Jesus' apostles will face God's judgment. Paul tells the Galatians that anyone who preaches a different, a mixed, a distorted gospel message will be accursed. That means that God's determined judgment will fall on that individual. And notice that God is no respecter of persons. Paul says, it doesn't matter who it is. He says, it could be me. It could be an angel. It doesn't matter the identity of the person. Tri-County, it could be me. God forbid. It could be a pastor of a church with 10,000 attendees. It could be a TV preacher watched by millions. God is no respecter of persons. He wants his gospel preached rightly without mixture. If I preach a different gospel, I will face God's judgment. And we, especially in American culture, are so enamored with celebrities, we have to be very careful. We are enamored with those who are popular and influential and wealthy, whether it's people inside or outside the church. And Paul tells these believers he loves, essentially, you don't give any individual person, teacher, preacher, evangelist, scholar, you don't give anyone your total allegiance. Your total allegiance instead goes to the apostolic gospel, the gospel that the apostles preached. Your allegiance is to a message And you evaluate everyone according to that message. Paul actually emphasizes the severity of his words. He rarely does this. But he repeats what he said in verse 8. In verse 9. As a way of emphasizing the severity of what he's saying. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received. Let him be accursed. He almost exactly repeats verse 8 and verse 9 to emphasize the severity. Now, Tri-County, so many professing Christians. In fact, I would say, statistically speaking, the majority of professing Christians are preaching and believing a gospel contrary to the one that the apostles preached, contrary to the gospel that we have received. I'm going to mention five, I could mention many more. What are popular contrary gospel messages? Well, first, in our area, one-third of people are Roman Catholic. There is the Roman Catholic gospel. This one, in a sense, is similar. It's very different, but it's, it's got similarities in its legalism, in its adding of works to what Christ has done, to what the Galatians were facing. It's somewhat similar. The Galatians were adding Moses to what Jesus did. The Roman Catholic Church adds Mary and traditions to what Jesus did. It's similarly legalistic. This is the largest so-called Christian church on the planet. Some excess of one billion adherents. They sadly in their church documents use the exact same language of Galatians 1 let him be anathema or let him be accursed to affirm the gospel that they teach that is contrary to the one message so I'm just going to share one of the canons of the council of Trent This has been reaffirmed in the 1950s and 60s by the Second Vatican Council. It's also been reaffirmed in the Catholic Church's Catechism of 1992. This is the exact language of the Council of Trent, Canon 30. If anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted, And the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such a wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him. Let him be anathema. You have to like reread and reread the language. Did Did I understand that rightly? In other words, if you believe that there is no judgment in purgatory, but instead, if you believe that those who trust Christ are justified and their guilt is fully removed so that they will never again face God's wrath, let you be accursed. You will face God's judgment. That is a contrary gospel. Another contrary gospel is the Mormon gospel. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, or sometimes just called LDS, denies that Jesus is God. They deny that Jesus died as the substitute for sinners. If you personally have questions about the LDS church, I would recommend getting two autobiographies. One by Adam Wilder, called Passport to Heaven, and the other by Lynn Wilder, I believe it's called Grace Unveiled. This son and mother were both converted out of the LDS church, both audiobooks are available on Hoopla if you want to get them freely through the local library. Adam Wilder and Lynn Wilder describe their arduous journey of coming to embrace the one true biblical gospel, and they do a great job explaining how the Mormon teaching is a false gospel, and they work through their own arduous journey of coming to that realization. It is a gospel that is contrary to the one that the apostles preached and to the one that we have received. Then, even more popular, there's the therapeutic gospel. This is spoken by preachers who are committed to never talking about sin, never talking about personal guilt, never talking about hell. It's a feel-good message. It's a, we don't want you to feel bad or worse than you already feel right now. This is the message of the most popular so-called evangelical church in the U.S., Joel Osteen's church. He is committed to not mentioning sin or hell. Such leaders think that people will have psychological damage done to them if you teach them that they are by nature enemies of God who are facing the wrath of God. There's the health-wealth-prosperity gospel, extremely popular internationally. It's closely related to the therapeutic gospel. Preachers of this gospel believe, quote, Christians should not be sick. It's Benny Hinn. Because, quote, I'm reading from the Potter's House Statement of Faith, It is God's will to heal and deliver his people today. It's by the stripes of Jesus that we are healed, delivered, and made whole. We have authority over sickness, disease, demons, curses, and every circumstance in life. Of course, Jesus taught his followers very differently. That those who embrace the gospel will face trials of every kind. That it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom. We will face trials by God's grace, with faith in the Lord Jesus until we see him. I think the most popular gospel of all is the universalist gospel. Universalism is the belief that all sinners, no matter whether they've trusted Christ or not, will eventually be reconciled to God. This is the common belief of everyone in our culture. You go to a funeral and everyone says, I'm glad they're in a better place when they have never trusted Christ or had no testimony of trusting Christ. Every mainline Protestant church in the world is now open to this belief of universalism among its leaders. For example, the PCUSA has a statement online that says, We have not mentioned hell in a statement of faith since the 1930s. And the same statement goes on to say, in 1974, the General Assembly officially adopted universalism as acceptable. Universalism means everyone goes to heaven, no one goes to hell. Tri-county, these are just a few. And sadly, there are more. There's the social gospel. There's the many roads up the same mountain to God gospel. Gospel. There is the try your best gospel. There is the I went to church for so many years gospel. And according to Paul, these are not gospels at all. There is one gospel and only one gospel. These gospels will not rescue you from sin. They will not reconcile you to God. Only faith in Jesus, in the finished work of Jesus can. I end, I conclude with this last Point from verse 10. Those who communicate the gospel must seek the approval of God alone. If we idolize the praise and the approval of other people, we will adjust the message of the gospel. People pleasers get themselves into big trouble because we tweak what we're saying to the ears of the person so that they'll like us. Or so that they'll get off our backs. The problem when you're dealing with the one true gospel is this. The gospel that actually saves people is repulsive to humans naturally. Because it is a message that confronts human pride. It is a message that says you can do nothing to earn it. It is a message that says you need Jesus completely. You can't do anything to help yourself So, I say to myself and to all of us here, we must ultimately live with an audience of one. We must care ultimately about what God and God alone thinks of us. What God thinks of us and whether God approves of us is in the end all that matters. And if we lose sight of God's approval, we will change the message. Now, as we approach the Lord's table, I want to invite you to just look back at verses 3, 4, and 5. Tri-County Bible Church, grace has come to you from the gospel that God designed, the one that God the Father authored, and the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. And because you have accepted that gift that God has offered you, you have peace with God now and forever. It's all because of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because Christ gave Himself for your sins, for my sins, to deliver us from this present evil age. God the Father did it willingly. God the Son did it willingly. It was their desire It was their plan to do this. To whom be glory forever and ever. When we personally understand the heart of God the Father and the heart of God the Son in willingly authoring and accomplishing our gracious salvation, we will want God to be glorified forever as we receive the bread and the juice this morning that remind us of the willingness of our God who authored and accomplished the gospel. Glorify him. Praise him. Confess your sin to him. Recommit your life to him until you see him. Let's pray. Lord, continue to receive our worship as we submit ourselves to your word and respond to it and as we are reminded of the cost of the gift that's been offered to us Lord be glorified